Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. We get together every other week and talk shop with some of the smartest women in this business. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Laura Krieger. Hello, everybody. And today we're going to talk a little bit about market structure, creation, redemption, some of the inner workings of ETFs with Shelly Antonevich, Senior Director of Industry and Financial Analysis at the Investment Company Institute, or ICI for short. Welcome, Shelly. Hi, thank you for having me. So you do you lead the research at ICI on the structure of the ETF market, uh, on key ETF trends, among other things. And recently you wrote about how ETFs functioned during the March uh, market meltdown, the post-COVID uh, big meltdown that we'll forever remember. So let's start a little bit big picture here. What's the, the big takeaway from the research you did on how ETFs behaved during that really troubling time? Did they perform as you expect? The ETF ecosystem performed just phenomenally well in March 2020. Uh, you have to remember back, I know it seems like forever ago, but in the face of the unprecedented market volatility that we had at the time, ETF shares traded smoothly, efficiently on the stock exchangers. Mm -hmm. We had market makers and other liquidity providers continuing to make two-sided markets in ETF shares. Um, bond ETFs acted as a price discovery tool for investors. I know we'll get into the specifics of that a little bit more later. Um, and the last thing uh, that we have in our report is that APs actually stepped up and facilitated a significantly higher level of creations and redemptions of ETF shares in March 2020. You know, I think with the March volatility, there's always anytime there's any type of either market crash or big spike in trading or when you saw when we saw the VIX go from 20s to 80, um, there's always this concern that somehow ETFs are going to either falter or they're going to enhance any kind of volatility or market crash. And there's this kind of lingering concern that APs, the authorized participants, just might not show up uh, when the market needs it most. But your research suggests that not only that was not the case, more of them showed up than usual to make sure things continue to, to work well. Why is there this constant concern about APs falling short or ETF structure falling short when we need most? Well, you know, we've heard these sort of, I like to call them doomsday scenarios for quite a while now. And I think it's it's largely because the ETF structure is uh, somewhat of a unique structure. And although it's been around for over 25 years, uh, ETFs have been growing so fast and more investors, institutional investors, retail investors are using them. So that naturally raises a flag of concern at policymakers, regulators, um, you know, financial press. And financial stability is always uh, a big deal. And there is a lot of, you know, concern about products, specific products or types of investors or investor behavior. And could that 
create amplifying effects in markets. Um, so it's a general concern, um, especially since the global financial crisis. Um, in, and ETFs have been one of those areas where policymakers have definitely scrutinized them. Um, and the fact that ETFs have what I kind of consider a, a dual structure, where they have a primary market where the ETF shares themselves are created and redeemed, and then they have a secondary market where the ETF shares themselves are traded and have their own market price, um, that can perhaps create a little angst for um, commentators that don't really understand that structure. And so they look for areas where there could be um, gaps. And one of those had been pointed out is APs, that authorized participants are these very large financial institutions that, that have multiple lines of businesses and they're often banks. And during a crisis period, would this financial would this financial institution pull away from make, creating or redeeming ETF shares because they have stresses someplace else on their balance sheet and they only have so much either capital to allocate or internal risk limits that they're willing to take. And so there was this concern without any data behind it that APs would step away from creating and, and redeeming ETF shares during a crisis period. And that would then in turn put a large amount of pressure on ETF trading in the secondary market. So what we wanted to do during the March 2020 period was we know that this was an absolute stress test. We have been saying, ICI has been saying ETFs have been stressed before, but that really hasn't, you know, the, uh, that's been dismissed. But March 2020, for all purposes across all of the policymakers worldwide, they're definitely saying that was a real world stress test and ETFs proved themselves resilient. The entire ETF ecosystem proved itself resilient. So ICI went out and we did a survey of ETF sponsors and we collected information over a three week period in March, 2020, during the height of the, um, the financial market crisis. And we, we collected data on 1,200 ETFs that made up over 90% of the assets in ETFs. And for every single ETF, we asked how many active APs they had every day uh, creating and redeeming ETF shares. And then to get a baseline comparison, we collected that same information for all those ETFs for the same three week period in March, 2019, which was a much more normal period. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that instead of running away and hiding from the much higher level of creations and redemptions and the number of ETFs that were looking, that had primary market activity in March, 2020, we actually saw more APs on average come in to facilitate all of that uh, primary market activity. 
And it wasn't just on average. It, we did it across asset classes. We did it across the size spectrum of ETFs. So while you might think larger ETFs, of course, would have more APs that would come in and facilitate uh, creations and redemptions, we also saw the same thing for smaller ETFs, those ETFs that had less than $100 million in assets. So I don't know about you, but I find this result makes a lot of sense to me intuitively because the whole reason why APs exist and why they do creations and redemptions in the first place is to make money, right? They want to make money on that arbitrage spread. And so, uh, you know, when, when volatility increases and there are pricing disconnects that, that arise, I mean, why wouldn't you want to go in and get some, some, make some change on, <laughs> on, on this? So the whole argument that in a time of, of market stress, APs would step away, I guess it never really connected with me because it doesn't seem like people would be willing to leave that money on the table, you know? Yes, that's absolutely the case. Um, more and more, though, what we're seeing or what we're hearing about the AP function, though, it's more of a conduit. Uh, rather than they themselves going in and doing the arbitrage activity. You have a lot of proprietary trading firms out there that are doing engaging in ETF arbitrage between the secondary and primary markets um, and the underlying markets. Uh, so ETFs, the, uh, I'm sorry, APs themselves are sort of acting as conduits and they get paid for that service. And when it's that type of pass-through, there's actually very little capital that they have to put forward. It's sort of, a, a, you know, they're going to get paid by the client to pass through either a creation or a redemption to the ETF. So in that sense, it absolutely is a no-brainer for them to stay there and facilitate those transactions. And, and something we saw during the March 2020 period was ETFs in that three-week period had over $650 billion in gross creations and gross redemptions of ETF shares. Um, wow. That is more than two times, over two times, uh, what they had in March 2019, which is around $260 billion in creations and redemptions. So when you've got almost... 400 billion more dollars there that needs to be passed back and forth from, to from the ETF in terms of creations and redemptions. You're not going to stand there and, and let some other AP get that fee, are you? Mm -hmm. So the, the, you know, there's this, this concern, there's primary liquidity, secondary market liquidity, there's the liquidity of the actual underlying if anything, the March volatility, the price action, the spike in volume, all that, um, did it put anything into focus as far as the structure itself, how it all, how all these pieces work that was surprising to you? Or is it was all just perfectly smooth and as expected? Did anything stand out on how these pieces all came together? Um, I think that the... You know, the, the EQ, I think the ETF ecosystem just really was super resilient from the primary market channel all the way through over to the secondary market trading. Um, we have 
we had some other data that was provided to us by SIBO on BZX, their BZX, their largest U.S. equity exchange, and they they gave us comparable information about the number of registered market makers and the number of other liquidity providers. Now, what's key with these other liquidity providers is that they uh, do not have obligations to provide two-sided quotes. Mm. So they can just flee uh, anytime they want. They can just take themselves out of the market. And the data that we have in the paper shows that while there was a very, very tiny drop off, it was not a wholesale pullback. So these other liquidity providers stood there wanting to make two sided quotes uh, that had the same sort of uh, bandwidth on the bid and ask spreads as the registered market makers. Um, And again, that result was consistent across asset classes of ETFs, uh, especially in emerging market equity ETFs, emerging market bond ETFs, where you would think those are much more niche products. Um, we did not see a, at hardly a drop off at all in the liquidity provision by these other liquidity providers. Uh, registered market makers, actually, when you compare them from March 2020 to March 2019, in terms of the number of registered market makers, were actually higher in March 2020. Hmm. Interesting. I have a quick question in, uh, in terms of just uh, just a quick data point. When you said um, that in March, the, the average number of APs for every one of the 1900 ETFs you looked at uh, went up. How many APs are usually on average involved on the day-to-day of an ETF? Ah, sure. Yeah, on on a average day, it's going to sound like a small number, but you got to remember it's every day and across all ETFs of all sizes. So in the 20 sort of normal period, uh, we had about 1.68 per ETF. Mm-hmm. In the stress period in March 2020, it was two APs per ETF. Now, if you look at it across size, so uh, ETFs that have more than, say, a billion dollars in AUM, uh, on any given day, this is just one day, they had about 2.5 ETFs, uh, I'm sorry, 2.5 APs in 2020 versus 1.8 in 2019. So definitely an uptick in the AP activity there. Oh, yeah. It was an uptick across all of them. So one of the things that uh, doomsdayers love to point out uh, or point their fingers at in the ETF market is uh, bond ETFs, right? They love to say the bond ETFs are on the verge of explosion or implosion or some sort of plosion. Uh, and uh, one of the biggest, uh, you know, culprits or, or whatever, um, or rather, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that it was drawing a lot of attention during the market uh, volatility earlier this year uh, was 
the proliferation of bond ETF discounts, right? So a bunch of bond ETFs, some of the largest bond ETFs on the market, developed discounts that stuck around for a little bit. Uh, and uh, eventually they resolved, but they were fairly persistent for a few you know, trading days, even a couple of weeks. So um, you know, even in the best of times, bond pricing for individual bonds can be kind of a, a game of who, best guesses, right? So so can you maybe give a little clarity as to why so many of the bond ETFs uh, on the market saw these big discounts develop? And um, you know what that meant is, you know, are bond ETFs fundamentally broken or is there something else going on here? Well, I think it's it's pretty clear that bond ETFs during the March 2020 period definitely acted as what we like to call price discovery vehicle. So mm -hmm. th this again goes back to the fact that that ETFs are traded on the secondary market and the market prices there in on the stock exchange are continually updated. Um, they're updated by just you know, participants posting quotes, putting in limit orders or other, you know, quotes, uh, bid quotes, ask quotes, transactions that are being done, information that's coming into the market. And so the market prices of bond ETF shares are continually updated and they incorporate market participants' real-time evolving views on the values of those underlying bonds that are being held in those ETF portfolios. Um, the bond ETF share prices also incorporate estimates of transaction costs. So you could think of it also as the latest bid ask spreads on the underlying securities, um, and then any premium or, you know, to offset risk on actual trading costs, uh, if they're gonna be greater than you might expect. Mm -hmm. And so because of this, the bond ETF prices in secondary market are can be thought of as being sort of maybe closer to what you think the value of those underlying bonds might be right then at that moment. And when you think about discounts and how they're calculated, discounts are usually calculated when the bond ETF strikes its nav at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And NAVs have different inputs. So the net asset value of the bond ETF is going to get transaction prices for bonds that actually did occur that day. Might not be at four o'clock when that NAV is struck, could have been at 10 o'clock. And in a fast moving market, you could have a very different price from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, then you've got bonds that don't transact at all and there are estimations being made for those bond prices. So what I can say is that sometimes when the bond ETF is trading, what you're really seeing is what market participants think those bonds are worth, as well as what all of the transaction costs that go into getting that bond portfolio together. So we felt that the discounts really reflected the actual liquidity costs of the underlying bonds. So when um, 
I spoke with uh, Reggie Brown. Uh, Reggie Brown is commonly known as the uh, godfather of ETFs. He's a big time market maker, um, you know, very well known in the industry. When I spoke with him uh, around March-ish uh, about what was going on in the bond market, uh, in the bond ETF market, he brought up this this idea of, uh, you know, the SEC introducing um, some some better transparency around bond pricing, uh, such as a, a national best bid offer system uh, for bonds, for individual bonds, maybe in the corporate market, maybe in the municipal bond market. Um, Shelly, what's your, what's your take on this? I know this is a common theme in um, uh, the, the, the SEC's uh, fixed income committee. Their advisory committee had a big meeting uh, not too long ago. This came up there as well. What, what do you feel like, what's your, your take on this as, um, you know, an expert in how bond ETFs work? Certainly, certainly transparency, you know, for bringing any kind of transparency into the bond market is going to be beneficial, beneficial for all market participants. Um, getting all the way to an NBBO system, that is a lofty, lofty goal. Um, I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just it. And I, and Reggie, I think would agree that it's a long term type goal. Um, but I do know that if you look back, um, and you think about the FINRA trace data and when that came out and the, the posting, even though we do now have some transparency ex post into bond transactions, that's been beneficial. So more and more transparency in the bond market is definitely going to be beneficial. What else? What's ahead for, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the other research you do, Shelley. Um, is this a, a, a one-off in, in the ETF space? Are there other, can people easily access some of your research? What else is coming on the pipe? Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sure. So this paper that we just put out, Experiences of U.S. Exchange Traded Funds During the COVID-19 Crisis, this paper is part of a larger report we're doing on uh, fund developments during the COVID-19 crisis. So this is one of five papers that we are writing. Uh, we have put out two, the ETF paper that we're discussing and a paper just on uh, developments in markets generally. Those are available on the ICI website, ICI.org, on our COVID-19 Resource Center. Uh, in terms of ET general ETF research that we have, we also at ICI.org have an ETF Resource Center. And there we have several papers that we've written on ETFs. We have a primer paper that we put out, which describes the structure of an ETF, uh, the creation and redemption sort of process for an ETF. Then put out a, a paper on AP participation, was, which was written way back in 2015. Um, and was the genesis for the survey that we did in the most recent paper on AP engagement, uh, most recent paper we put out. Mm -hmm. Then we also have videos, educational videos for investors on ETFs as well, uh, which are just, you know, small. They're probably, I think, around three minutes in length to help investors understand 
ETFs. And then also we have a, uh, one on understanding ETFs and the difference to mutual funds and another one on ETFs in volatile markets. Uh, we have a, a report on uh, a technical, more technical paper on ETFs in terms of uh, listing requirements. And then we have another paper out on characteristics of investors for ETF. So to, to circle back to kind of just kind of overarch on this conversation we had on APs today, specifically on this latest report, uh, given that you've been watching this space, analyzing the data uh, on APs for at least five years since the first study in 2015, um, any key trends you see in terms of this role specifically in the ETF ecosystem, or is the takeaway here, as we see a lot of investors come to the ETF market for the very first time this year, that, you know, APs are always there, they're always doing their job no matter the weather, and it's all well and sleep well at night? Well, I think, you know, the entire experience in March 2020 um, you know, if you look at it all the way from the AP engagement, the trading on the secondary market, the continued engagement by uh, liquidity providers in, uh, the, uh, in the secondary market for ETF shares, I think when you look at the totality of all of the evidence that we have in the paper, um, we really think that this should ease concerns about ETFs putting additional stress on the financial system in a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and we've already seen um, some sort of glimmers of this when you look at reports by the BIS, uh, FSB, uh, ECB. You see them saying things about ETFs in very sort of complementary uh, terms. Um, which is kind of unusual because they are some of the folks who had previously been casting a lot of doubts about how ETFs would perform during the stress market. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can finally put the uh, the ETFs are going to destroy the, the market's uh, concern. We can finally put that to bed. That would be great if we could do that. Yeah, and I think that some of the results that we have in the paper actually will, will help um, to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we are going to leave it there for today. Thank you so much, Shelly, for joining us, uh, and, and digging deep into such a fun, crunchy topic. Loved it. Thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate it being on. Uh, for more info on this topic or on any ETF topic or to catch up on our past episodes, uh, please feel free to visit us at ETF.com. And for more information on how to get involved in women at ETFs, please visit womeninetfs.com. It's all one word. You can write to us with your questions or comments, your thoughts at ETF Working Lunch, again, all one word, at etf.com. On behalf of myself, Cynthia Murphy, and the rest of the etf.com team, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next episode.